Welcome to Heritage Tree, where we talk about heritage care and development for people and organizations. And now to our host, Dr. Dina Michelle Roscoe. And just to briefly list several descriptions of supremacy culture as written by 1999 and present, Tima Okun, Kenneth Jones, Beverly Daniel Tatum, Paul Cavell, Derek Jensen, and Wilson Schaefe, and so many others. You can find a lot of this information on drworks.org, whitesupremacyculture.info, surj.org, vawnet, and dismantlingracism.org. And notice that supremacy, by the way, isn't just racism. I talk about childism in my books, about this effect on, as I hinted at in this episode, women and children when there is a superiority, and it is a false confidence, mind you, because if you have to front that much, then that means that you don't have that internal basis to go on, that you are exceedingly great, for only God is. To briefly list the dimensions of supremacy, and it's noted as white supremacy, but mind you, the world over, you have so much conflict throughout the generations with different people groups who are reduced by this narcissistic abuse. Perfectionism, urgency, defensiveness, quantity over quality, worship of the written word, not to say Jesus, but this overemphasis on a written culture, only one right way, paternalism, either or thinking, power hoarding. We just heard a little bit of that in the scriptures. Fear of open conflict, individualism, I'm the only one, progress bigger and more, objectivity, and we often hear about that in the entire scientific realm, hinges its entire or lays its entire foundation on this worship of objectivity, relationship over task, and a right to comfort. All of these we see sort of play out in these generational stories and how there's so much conflict and strife out of that James 3.16 description of jealous self-interest. The authors go into some solutions and just to briefly again list them, and I would encourage you to read through this work, cultural approach to making mistakes and learning and appreciation as an antidote to perfectionism. Realistic work plans, active listening, validation, communal ownership, and these are my paraphrases, by the way, as an antidote to urgency. Uh, Communal ownership and willingness to face fears, accepting responsibility, giving people goodwill and expectations instead of defensiveness. Value statements and outlining the process, valuing the process, And I would add one of the approaches that I use, a whole room and systems approach to bring the whole room in, the whole group in to make decisions, accountability that we're doing the values and addressing feedback as an antidote to quantity over quality, analyzing how people give and receive information, recognizing each other's contributions. And this is a big one, huge for jealousy, 
How can we praise others and celebrate them? How can we welcome mothers and babies, not rush them? How can we give them a quality experience and let them learn and make mistakes and build relationships instead of the task, instead of saying it was written down, therefore it is, it's a one and done, I'm done. It's almost a relic of rape culture, and this is a huge phrase to use, but this wham, bam, I'm done, it's up to you now, I'm leaving, this sort of bereft of generations in how we've over-idealized sight and written words in our culture. These are antidotes to the written word. Then we have honoring how people accomplish things that's different, how people set goals and explore other options, learning from the community ways of doing, building meaningful community, taking time to be on the ground and in the community. And this one actually can be at odds also with the objectivity where we want this safe distance from others, this safe purview of being away from their problems. Well, that only feeds only one right way. It's really this oversimplification. And you hear this and how the gospel can be preached in terms of morality, politics, ideology. I go into this in book two. These are antidotes to only one right way. Knowledge and access, including people and decisions that affect them. This is a huge antidote to paternalism. And by the way, I don't advocate patriarchy or matriarchy. There is a communal circle way of living, a messier way, but also outlined in the epistles to Timothy and Titus, there's an organized way to govern the church and to manage our gospel heritage. If we even want to dare use that word manage, it is not a comfortable word to use because it smacks of paternalism. But if you think about it, how steeped our culture is in family and in church even, that we've come to worship more the ideology of a role of marriage or a role of a political leader, for instance, instead of the role of Christ and what he is doing for us in our lives and whether or not we're willing to defy convention and be the one who disrupts bystanders, who disrupts abuse, who calls out to call in, to invite people to the gospel. How willing are we to address those norms to the extent to which we are not an artifact of a culture that has been deceived by Satan to be supremacist, which really is an effort on his part to scale God's covenant, but in his way to say, no, 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 God, you're not exceedingly great. I am, and we're his puppets. So don't be Satan's puppet. Don't go along with a supremacy culture. Noticing, taking breaks, this is important breaks to pause, to disrupt the narrative, to take rest, give people a chance to increase margin, communicate with them. And these are my added words, by the way, communicate with them in a way that lets them reset and doesn't trigger their sympathetic nervous system, but lets them imagine and rest that respects their limits. Don't take people beyond their threshold. And when you do that, you actually trigger distress in them. And then you can say, oh, they are on display now. You can scapegoat them, blame them for the problem, blame them for their distress. This happens to people of color, to black 
people. This happens to moms. This happens to kids in the way that we are so hard on them and expecting them to perform in all of these ways I've just listed perfectly with urgency and doing it a whole bunch of times and just knowing the answer once instead of being able to learn and without resources. This is an impossible system. It's impossible to meet these goals, if you will, these norms that a culture for supremacy is asking us to keep. And that's possibly contributing to public health and safety crises, including stress-induced illness. Think about it. This does not sound like a happy way to live, a healthy way to live. So noticing, taking breaks, giving people space. This was huge for me in postpartum. I had so much undue rushing and criticism and negativity and even harassment and abuse in that time that I really touched that fringe of what supremacy had done, how it had gone so entrenched in our culture, in our medical environments, in family systems, in the denial of churches to not confront it, not all churches, but many of the mainstream or white culture-based churches. And by the way, you don't have to be white to be supremacist or to do what these cultural norms are. And again, we're going to get to this in a minute. It's not a matter of an opinion. It's a matter of just what is acceptable and what isn't. And what we've learned is rewarded and what is punished. So when we give people space, dig deep to make complex thinking, complex decisions about complex issues, to not oversimplify them and put them under even more undue pressure and not make decisions or force them to make a decision under pressure. That's like a duress situation. And that's what either or thinking does. So these are antidotes to either or thinking. Another dimension, power sharing, value and practice, results and change. These are antidotes to power hoarding, the extent to which we are willing to let others share in the creation of a work. And I'll say as a more, I'm a more ambivert trained, but tend to be an introvert, contemplative thinker, emotive base, effective, a word-based person. I like to create. God has given me a gift of discernment, a gift of compassion, and a gift of words, of craftsmanship, craftswomanship over words and symbols. And I want to use those to encourage others. And sometimes that requires exhorting, which I don't always feel that I have the boldness to do or the tenure to do it. But Sometimes with power hoarding, well, what about power sharing? Sharing economies are so powerful. We have a local buy nothing group and they, they are referencing them by the way. And anyone else, any of these organizations or authors in this podcast, any references to any of these organizations or people does not mean they buy into or are endorsing any of my comments. They're mine alone and based on my opinions. And again, I'm coming at this from an EQ ministry position of a calling to speak encouragement and exhort the churches. And that's my point of view, that there is a place for spiritual intervention, for spiritual description of the dynamics we see. In other words, to put the word into context, to not always be, again, defensive 
you know, accusing people of taking the word out of context or blaming culture or blaming people, groups for the problems that we encounter because we feel scared of losing our comfort. That is effectively a relic of an economic slavery that happened when the patriarch sold Joseph to Egypt, and that's been passed on for generations since. More antidotes. Role-playing, not muting critique. This is a big one with feedback from moms. And again, this is my work in heritage ministry is working with parents and caregivers. When they say what they need, you will know if you give feedback and if it triggers concern and compassion or rage, you will know really quick and you'll feel it in your body, the stress of being in a situation that's not supportive. It's not just that a mom needs support. She needs quality support that validates and I have a whole chapter on validation in book three that validates her critique, her feedback, and doesn't require her to frame it in a certain way. I brought some pretty hard issues to tension of pastoral leaders and others in the past and family leaders and so forth. And they were always on me for how I presented it. So I did a lot of therapy or I did a lot of research in scripture. I did a lot of practice or I would write it down or I would say it in so many different ways. But I learned from that. It was not how I said it. It was not the orality of my oral collateral, as you might want to say. It was not my presentation. They were muting my critique. They didn't want to hear the bottom line. They didn't want to hear the feedback I had to give because it was threatening to them. They didn't want to change or take responsibility. And if you don't want to take responsibility over someone else's pain, that means you don't care for them. Flat out, you don't. And if you want to care for them, then please revisit that. And that's what the Lord and ideally the work of the church can help us to do. These are antidotes to fear of open conflict. And also I want to say narcissistic abuse is not just between two people. Family systems enable it. And they do it either because they go along with it, because they like it, or they, they that's how they don't, they're ignorant of it, or they believe the lies, or they do it because there's a certain power factor or a function that they might be punished too if they speak up. And this is where we need to be brave and stand up for those who are being hurt and harmed, who are being abused or mistreated, and not judge them or say, oh, they're too sensitive. That's code word. If you say that, what did you do to, to hurt that person, to make them react? You could poke a dog and it will bark and growl at you. You can approach a mama bear with cubs and she will react and roar at you. I don't recommend either. You can do those things, but do you blame the reaction? Well, we do that to people, and it is an insanity. Like I said, not a small topic. More antidotes. Value and design and teamwork accountability to the group, meetings to solve challenges, and I would add imagine possibilities versus just report problems or have people speak to their roles or their departments. That just can create silos. And I do a lot of work in organizations around that, nonprofits and ministries, a lot of work in coaching on the me, we, and future story. And that can get people out of this as an antidote to individualism. Evaluation as a team, delegating for shared goals. This is an antidote. I'm the only one. And I love this next one. Definitely reminds me of indigenous cultural ways of being in community with one another, seventh generational thinking. 
how does the decision of the group, not just the individual, impact to the seventh generation? And how will that change what we do, what we plan, what we spend money on? Imagine if we slowed down. Notice how all of these tendencies, all of these descriptions of supremacy help each other keep that system as a status quo. Because if we're rushing, for instance, for urgency, we don't have time to slow down and be about relationships to plan ahead for seven generations. Who wants to take the time to that? We're all, there's a line in the streets. Let's just run. Any fool will quarrel, the scripture says, but a wise person will abstain from conflict. And a foolish person will go out and say, there's a line in the streets and be scared and create all this havoc out of nothing. But what does a wise person do? What, how, how did Jesus describe in the Beatitudes? We treat one another. Who gets blessed? Again, the generational blessing. Seventh generational thinking is an antidote to progress bigger and more. See, we're expecting people to produce, produce, go, 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 go. And what that means is we've taken out the rest needed so we don't burn hot and break. We need that rest built in to generational care, to heritage care. Realizing there are different perspectives or worldviews, and I, I would say putting affection, goodwill, humanity, harmony, peace as more important, and even health is more important than objectivity. And objectivity is just overused. Something that may be a fact may not be true. It may be a fact that something happened in history, but truth is something that's grander. Reality is something that we often interpret of those situations. So where do we put our confidence? Put the relationship over the task or my way. Really, all of these efforts of supremacy are a lazy and haphazard and complicated way to avoid work. That's it. If you're doing more of the work in relationships or in society to solve different problems or in your organizations, again, we have one more antidote list here. And I want to just add the scripture that talks about being in a narcissistic age of in the end, men will be lovers of themselves. This last two here, the objectivity and the right to comfort, the objectivity, the antidotes to objectivity really do come down to this need to remember a theory of the mind or object constancy of being able to, in other words, maintain affection toward people who disagree with you, maintain teamwork or rapport, maintain the ability to understand and boundary your own point of view and regulate your own feelings and learn how to do that with others. These are huge skills that oftentimes are imprinted on people at an early age, even before six years old, and in the preschool years, especially, is critical. And so how we are supporting caregivers of young children is hugely important to the future of society. If we're thinking of seventh generation thinking, how healthy and robust do we want our society to be versus performative? And even in the ideologies of blue versus red or neoliberal versus conservative or and those labels, by the way, don't really apply right now because it's a different Milo, a different mix. These don't, these are antidotes to objectivity. And then these next antidotes, not blame those who raise concerns or scapegoat them, not 
marginalize them. In other words, not punish them. We need discernment to learn and grow. We need to have discomfort to learn and grow, not take things personally, not put it all on yourself. Understand that there are layers or more perspectives to the picture. There's a larger picture involved that we don't necessarily see. Just like Abraham, he saw the stars, but he couldn't count them. And he heard the blessing, but he also heard the prophecy about uh, horrible things that would happen in being enslaved. Again, this cosmic war, if you will, against John 3.16 versus James 3.16 was described in those, the way of God and the way of Satan. So what to take from all this and how does all of this talking about these big topics influence our day-to-day life? What is a pride-based system that you notice in your life? What's one thing that you notice that seems off, that seems strife-ridden, and it keeps repeating, it keeps coming up, and you tried to handle it or you've tried to avoid it? I wonder if there's a larger or different language or narrative or words that we can put to it. I wonder what it would be like if we just pause to consider that there's an overlap to all this conversation right now about intergroup violence, intergroup strife, about supremacy. These are different words just to describe the conflict that we see play out in the scripture. And how as a church can we validate a gospel heritage better? Can we speak to its solutions and not be so entrenched in preserving a cultural way of life? This cultural way of life in the United States in the past 40 years especially has been unprecedented in the world in terms of our enormous use of resources to maintain a comfort that's not really sustainable. And actually, we could be, we could still live in reasonable comfort without the huge costs that we put to it. So I wonder what other ways could be done. I wonder how we could run our families or organizations better. And what would be the alternative to supremacy, pride-based system? What is a more loving system to offer and how can we lead in that way? Let's pray. Thank you, God, for this day. Thank you for our families. Thank you that you promised that your family would be great and big, just like you, God, being great, exceedingly great, bigger than even that, and that you are our prize. Please help us remember that and that the path to glory is not an easy one, and nor should we seek it. I just pray that you will steep us in the path of love and that we can walk well in it for our generations to come and for our own joy and healing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard, tip us at the link below and inquire, subscribe, and shop our merchandise label of Heritage Tree and Heritage at dinamichellerosco.com and dogwoodgroup.io. Come back again when we gather around the heritage tree.